I was reading recently an article on a new set of laws that were passed about driving. The first in the nation, perhaps you saw it as well, the state of Utah, perhaps best known for Mormons and skiing, now is being also known as a place where highway safety is placed at a premium. They passed legislation making it nearly as punishable to text on a phone while driving as it is to drink and drive. There have been a rash lately of these sorts of accidents of especially young people looking down at a small phone and typing things in or looking at what someone has sent to them while they're driving down a highway or down the street. One such accident that brought this about was a woman who drove into a construction area, killed several people. It was all stopped because she hadn't seen a thing looking down at her phone. This is a good example, I think, that we can grab a hold of and say, obviously, you should be paying attention to the road. That's what you're supposed to be doing. There's a place for driving. There's a place for working on your phone, and they're not together. And the irony is that this is more difficult to do than to drink and to drive. It's more difficult to be unfocused than it is to be impaired. Think about that. I think that's also true of a spiritual life. It's much more difficult to live a life that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him if we are unfocused than even if we are impaired. Now, I'm not encouraging you to either drive or live life impaired. But what I want us to do this morning is to think about our focus as a church, as families, and as individual believers. I want us to look this morning at perhaps the most important of a series of attributes of the church that we're going to be looking at in the next, this week and six weeks following. Attributes of the church that Paul lays down in the book of Philippians. And this morning's attribute is that the church needs to be Christ-focused. Paul is describing the church as being a Christ-focused church. He describes the dangers that are involved with a loss of focus. And he describes where that focus needs to be. It is not simply that we focus on any object and use that as our guideline. No. Paul would have us follow after our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we will be focused first by watching Christ's work. Watching Christ's work in those around us and in ourselves. And then second, we will show our focus by wrestling with the world. Watching Christ's work and then wrestling with the world. And then finally, our focus, our final W, is waiting for Christ. So watching Christ's work, wrestling with the world, and then waiting for Christ. So let's see then what this kind of focus looks like in the midst of the people of God. The first thing that we see as we watch Christ's work is that we are to follow toward Jesus. We are to follow others as they lead us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice how our text begins here this morning. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
The first thing that Paul has to say as he wants us to be focused on Jesus Christ is imitate me. Now, we take a step back here and we may say, wait a minute, Paul. (laughs) A little bit proud of yourself, aren't you? I mean, shouldn't you tell us to imitate Jesus Christ? Shouldn't you be pointing us toward Jesus? Why are you telling us to imitate you? Is it because you're all that? That we're supposed to do every little thing that you do? Eat the food that you eat? Wear the shoes that you wear? Go the places you go? No. Paul is here encouraging us to imitate him as a means of getting to Christ. As a means of following Christ. Walking in the path of Christ. Remember, Paul has just told us last week that he is absolutely not perfect. He says, it's not like I've attained it. It's not like I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I'm not perfect at all. As a matter of fact, Paul is the type of man, the type of Christian, that the more he looks at himself and the more he plumbs the depths of his soul, the worse he seems. He goes from being the least of the apostles to a sinner to the chief of sinners. And when he says he is the chief of sinners, he writes it in his last book that he writes and he uses the present tense. So Paul never thought that he arrived. That was not his intention here. No, he wants to gather up his people, his pastoral charge, and appoint them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he uses this word again, brothers, at the beginning of verse 17. If you look back through this chapter, you will notice that not once, not twice, but three times Paul uses the phrase brothers. It's a term of endearment. It's not simply a mode of address. He is reminding the Philippians that he is running in the exact same race that they are. This is an important thing for any church to be focused. The minute that either John or I or anyone teaches or preaches from a pulpit that you should follow us and the focus should be upon us, you need to stand back and say, wait a minute, aren't you in the same race with us? Aren't we all running toward the same goal? That is the intention of preaching authoritatively from God's Word. To point each of us and to encourage us to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is running in the same race. He is showing the way. And this is important if we think about it. Because no one likes to get advice or encouragement from someone who isn't sharing hardship with them. Right? It's one thing to follow someone in a marathon, to go on their heels, to be pressed on by the numbers on the back of their jersey. It's quite another thing for someone to get on a moped, go through a shortcut, get to the finish line and say, hey, follow me. I'm over here. I'm at the end. It's not very encouraging. We say, you're not in the race. Paul is running the same race with the Philippians. We are to follow him, but we're not just to follow Paul. We are also to follow others. Look, he says that we are to join in imitating him, but also to keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, keep your eyes out. And this, I think, is an explicit contrast. If you look back at verse 2 of chapter 3, you remember he said, look out for the dogs. Be on alert. 
Here it's a slightly different word, but I think there's an implied contrast. As intently as you are looking out for those who might hurt you, you need to be that intent at looking out for those who will push you on in the race. Now, notice what Paul is doing here by telling them to look to others. He's doing something that not many people will do. He's admitting publicly that he does not have all the answers. He says, you don't just have to follow me. I'm not the only one who's on this road to the celestial city. I'm not the only one following after Jesus. You can look around, look out carefully, and find those who are walking according to the rule that God has laid down. This is the exact opposite of the way cults work, in which everyone has to only watch the leader and can't do anything and is encouraged not to think at all for themselves, but rather to eat the exact food that the leader eats, to wake up at the exact time that the leader wakes up. They're encouraged to give up their mind. This is not the case with following the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to exercise our minds, to go after him with all our heart, mind, and soul. This is the way that we follow Jesus by following others. We are to imitate the service and the attitude of those around us. You'll notice what is not implied here. We're not to imitate the gifts of others around us. You see, Paul didn't say, find a good preacher and follow after him. Find someone who's good at serving others and follow after them. Find someone who has the gift of hospitality and follow after them. No, he says, follow after those who are walking according to the way. Look at their lives, look at the attitude that they have in the very midst of their being and follow them in that way. Don't worry about what gifts they have and what gifts you have. Follow them along the path that is before you. And all of this is to be done by way of following Jesus Christ. You see, when Paul says, imitate me, which he says quite often in the scriptures, it's always in the context whether it's expressed or not, of 1 Corinthians 11.1, which is when he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. You see, Paul is encouraging the Philippians with a flesh and blood example, saying, follow after me even as I struggle, as we go together toward Jesus. We are to follow people toward Jesus, but there is also something else. We are not always at the back of the pack. So as we follow others toward Jesus, we are also to lead to Jesus. We are to lead each other to Jesus. And this is based on a statement of fact that Paul lays down in verse 20. He says, very matter-of-factly, our citizenship is in heaven. That is true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice he doesn't say, the best among us have citizenship in heaven. He doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven. He doesn't say our citizenship may be in heaven. He says right now, Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul encourages us that his approach to the truth, his approach to life should be ours as well, and we should not only be following, we should be leading others. And if we think about Paul's approach to the truth, it's very significant. Paul is not a controversialist. He's involved in controversy, 
We've seen that several times here in Philippians. But he is not a controversialist. He does not fight for the sake of fighting. He does not quarrel for the sake of simply being right or being recognized. No. And his pursuit of the truth is not detached or disinterested. He is following after the truth for a love not only of the truth, but of God's people. It's one of the reasons why we'll see in a minute. He breaks into weeping over the Philippians. Now, you know what this looks like, maybe in a, in a worldly sense. We speak about teachers. And we think about teachers are someone who needs to know their material. You don't put a physics teacher in a classroom to teach German. Unless, of course, they know German. And you don't put a Latin teacher in the midst of a physics class. Especially if that person is me. Because you don't know the material. But as soon as we speak about mastery of material, the next thing that we say is about teachers is that they love the children. Don't we? They don't have a detached way of teaching. They have a commitment to their students. We see this even to a higher degree in our homeschooling families where there's a natural love and bond and affinity because of the parental relationship. But it's true of any teacher, whether it be a private teacher or a public teacher, there is a care and a desire to serve the children. That is the way in which Paul has the truth serve his people. And that means that Paul cannot be focused merely on his own growth. Paul cannot stand off to the side and say, well, I'm going to go after Jesus and I'm not going to worry about you and where you are. I've got, to, I've got things to do. I've got people to see. I've got verses to memorize. I've got to go ahead. No, that's not the way that we lead others to Christ. We must not be focused merely upon ourselves. We must be focused upon those who are around us, encouraging them on, telling them to follow us as we follow others, having this great chain of commitment to the truth of God. One commentator puts it this way that I think is very appropriate. He says, as Christians, we must always be ready to bear our own load alone. And at the same time, we must always be ready to bear another's burden. In other words, we don't expect others to bear our burden. We carry our own. But at the same time that we carry our own, we expect to help others with their burden. This is the way that we point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is especially critical in our day. Because the church is rocked by a lack of leadership a lack of spiritual leadership. I don't mean merely in pastors or officers or Sunday school teachers. I mean in the midst of families. We live in an age in which, in the main, fathers have abdicated their duty. Fathers have been forced out of their duty by the government, by society, by pressures from outside. If we are to be a Christ-focused church, fathers must lead in their homes. They must follow Jesus Christ. They must encourage their wives in following Jesus Christ. They must encourage their children. They must equip their wives to teach their children and to encourage others to follow after. It does not end with fathers, but so often it begins with fathers. 
If you are the father in your household, this challenge from God's word comes down to you now. You cannot merely be silent. You cannot merely avoid being a hindrance in the home. You must take spiritual responsibility for your family. You must push them onward. You must encourage them with love, with God's word, to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul does this. He has these words for us. He calls attention to this life that he requires. And then he makes it even sharper in focus by setting up a contrast. You all know what a contrast is, right? Perhaps you've had opportunity, maybe some of you children, when someone wasn't looking, you played around with a copy machine. Or you've moved some of the knobs or dials on the printer at home. And one of those is a contrast. The contrast button is that sets up the difference between the black and the white. And you can make it so that they're very sharp, or you can blur the edges so it all becomes one kind of mix of gray. That's often the case in our society today. In order to avoid shaming anyone, in order to avoid saying that there is any absolute truth, we make everything a shade of dull gray. And Paul says, no, there is a contrast here. And there's a warning about what may come into your midst. And as he does so, he reminds us that we are not only to watch the work that Christ has done, but that we are to wrestle with the world that is opposed to him. Look at what he says here. He says, join in imitating me. Why? Because many, for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul begins to describe for us the characteristics of the world. And he actually starts at the end. And then he proceeds to go all the way down to the beginning or the root of the problem. The end is destruction for following the world. But let's go all the way down to the end of this sentence, the end of verse 19, and see that the root of all trouble is being earthly-minded. The root of all trouble is having minds set on earthly things. Now, this is an important and sharp contrast because often as we look and contrast ourselves in the church with the world, we look at behavior, how we dress, how we speak, the way in which we walk or relate to other people, the books we read, the music we listen to. And Paul says that's not the starting point. We'll get to it in a minute. But he says the starting point is actually being minded about things of the earth. We might paraphrase it this way. Those who are of the world, their whole orientation is earthly. And this is in contrast to the what to what Paul has been calling us to, where he calls us to set our mind on higher things, to have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, to look to the Lord. Paul says, the world doesn't look to the Lord. The world doesn't look to what is to come. The world doesn't look to the end. Their minds are focused on earthly things. And when he says, 
They look at these earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. He uses a word that we've seen over and over and over again. It's the same word for to think that also carries with it the connotation of the attitude I have when thinking, the aim that I am going toward, what I cultivate in my life. You remember this? We saw this first in chapter 1 when Paul said, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Paul says, they feel this way about existence. They think, feel, and aim toward the earth. This is what it means to be earthly-minded. It's focusing upon the things that are against God as opposed to the things of God. It is to have the mind of Romans 1 that sees and knows the truth of God but suppresses it. This is the root of worldliness. But it doesn't stop there. No, if we back up just a little bit in that verse, we see that these people glory in their shame. They glory in what is shameful. It is a complete reverse of moral standards. Now, as soon as I say that, there's something running through your mind. I don't know what it is that's in our society, but there are plenty of examples to think about in terms of a complete reversal of moral standards, aren't there? And it's not just with adults. It's with children, too. I read earlier this week that there is a thought that right now in our generation, there is perhaps more careless, consciousness-less lying than ever before. It is assumed that children will cheat in school. You know, now they don't just check children's papers against the Internet to search for phrases. They have whole companies designed to run searches on term papers and essays to find whether they have been completely taken from somewhere else. There is... Story after story that we hear in our day, in the PCA, of ministers being called on the carpet for printing out a sermon from the Internet and preaching it as if it were their own. Using the same examples, saying, well, when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, wait a minute, I thought you were from Kansas. Well, no, when I was spent that time in There is a complete lack of truth in our society. There is a reversal of moral standards. And what it means is those who are against following Christ, those who are against the Word of God, they are happy with what they should be ashamed of. Now, you may have heard that shame is a bad thing. And it can be, especially if it's undeserved. But I'm here to tell you that shame is a good thing. Children, if you lie to your parents, you should be ashamed. Adults, if you take something that doesn't belong to you from your office or your neighbor, you should be ashamed. Shame is God's way of pricking the conscience so that we might know our sin, repent of our sin, seek the Savior, and follow after Him. But you see, those who have no shame have no conscience. They have no desire to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no desire to follow God. 
And so this leads then to the next stage that we see if we back up yet again. Their God is their belly. Now, that doesn't mean that these people spend a bit too much time at the buffet. It it could, but that's certainly not the main point here. What it means is those who are earthly minded then go to the stage of reversing moral standards. They're glorying in what they should be ashamed of. They have no shame anymore. They have jettisoned God's standards. And is it any surprise that when they get rid of God's standards, they get rid of God? And God becomes them. God becomes their own desires. And Paul says, beware. They're out there. They're going to come in. They're going to use fancy words. They're going to drop names. They're going to claim that they know Jesus, but their God is their belly. For them, personal satisfaction is the key. Being fulfilled. We see this in our society, don't we? This is the message of Tony Robbins. Is it not? I mean, many of you have seen his infomercials over and over and over again. The message of Tony Robbins, and he's not shy about it, is you need to fulfill your life. You need to be satisfied in life. You need to get rid of things that don't satisfy you and pursue the things that do. And he says it with much more gusto and a much bigger microphone than I have. But this is not just something that happens out there, is it? There are those who claim to be laboring in the cause of Christ. The message of Tony Robbins is the message of Joel Osteen. You want your best life? You can have it now. Be satisfied. We even see it in those who have good intentions. Jesus becomes not the Lord of glory to be worshipped and served. Jesus becomes the key to finding personal fulfillment. In my marriage, with my children, with my job. Is your job bad? Get a little Jesus. He'll make it better. Is your home too small? Have some Jesus. He'll make it seem bigger. Their God is their belly. And you see, Paul says, these people are out to harm you. Now, I want you to notice what Paul does. He's very clear that there is a rejection of authority going on here, but he doesn't say what exactly it is. Do you notice that? These are very general terms. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. With mindset on earthly things. Why is that? Because if Paul was very specific, if Paul was preaching this toward those of you that are 45, everyone here under 20 would go, whew, not my problem, and avoid it. And if Paul decided that he had to get the children or the teens, then everyone who was retired would go, glad I'm past that. But you see, Paul does not let any of us out from under the microscope. He does not let any of us out from under the demands of the law of God and of following Jesus Christ. This equally applies to those of you sitting here right now who are 6, 7, 8, and 10 as it does to 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 80-year-olds. You see, it's about a mindset. It's about a way of life. It's not about a specific behavior. This is what it means. This is what is characteristic of the world. And this kind of characteristic leads to a consequence. As we wrestle with the world, one of the things Paul wants to remind us is not only what the world looks like, but what the consequences of the world are. And they are dire. 
He says, these are the ones who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And these are the ones whose end is destruction. These are the people who are enemies of the gospel. There is a real danger, Paul says. Now, I want to remind you, go back in your mind's eye as we were looking at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And you remember I told you that this is an outstanding church, that this is a church that served Paul and provided for his needs and was growing and had strength of leadership. And Paul was so thankful for them. He was thankful for all of them because of their partnership in the gospel. This is a church that was working to build the kingdom. And Paul still says, you need to be careful. Because there are going to be those that are going to try and come in and not only upset the apple cart, they are going to come in and be enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's no surprise that when Paul starts talking about people he loves and the gospel, that he can't contain himself. Do you notice that? He says, I I told you many times, often, and I tell you now, even with tears. Actually, the word there is, even as I am weeping and wailing. This is not Paul saying, in your mind's eye picturing him, that he's getting a little bit misty. He's not sobbing quietly. This is, he is wailing and moaning with anguish and grief. It's the only time in the entire Bible Paul says this. That he is weeping because he fears the consequences of what will happen to his church, to the people of God, to the Christians at Philippi, if these enemies of the gospel, if the consequences of the world are brought down. They are enemies of the gospel, and therefore they are enemies of Jesus Christ himself. And we need to be reminded from Paul that the battle is a daily battle against the enemies of the cross. Do you notice that in verse 17? He says, keep your eyes on those who are walking. Because many others are doing evil. He says, keep looking around all the time. Keep your eyes fixed on those who are following Jesus. Don't be distracted by others who are around you. You don't get a rest from the world, do you? Because even if you find yourself one of these white egg-shaped, I don't know what you call them, the chambers where you can't, sensory deprivation chambers where you can't hear or see anything, and you get to sit in the warm water, You know, everywhere you go, there you are. And so your own temptations, your own sins, your own lack of following the Lord Jesus Christ goes with you. And as soon as you put someone beside you, the world is there as well. You see, you cannot get away from sin. Not until glory. It's a constant daily battle that must be done. And it is a fierce battle. Paul says, many times I have warned you. Often I have warned you. Many people are around you. These are the enemies of Christ. And their end is destruction. Now, this word for destruction is is not kind of fading out. This doesn't describe the kind of destruction that comes when someone passes away in their sleep. This 
kids is a big explosion in the movies with pyrotechnic colors. It is destructive, ruinous destruction. It is something blowing up beyond all repair. (coughs) It is, in this context, eternal destruction. Now, notice the contrast. Look up just a bit earlier in chapter 3. Their end, their goal, their purpose is destruction. What is Paul's goal? Paul's end. Paul's purpose. It's the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. You see, this is where, again, we need to realize that in life there is no Switzerland. You are either following after the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ or you are following after the goal of destruction. If you have not come to the place in your life where you have committed everything that you are and everything that you have to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and the only way in which you can be right with God, if by faith you are trusting in His work to be right with God, that is the only way to avoid destruction. If you are not pressing on toward that goal, if you have not had enough of self, if you have not had enough of sin and your own authority, then your end is destruction. Paul says it clearly here. But praise be to God that that does not have to be the end. You see, Paul is encouraging the Philippians, and I encourage you now. If you have not come to faith in Christ, you must. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't think things will be clearer on Tuesday. Today, this morning, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, don't slow down in following Him. Go after the goal. Seize it. Desire it. Want it. This end is before you. To ignore it is to be like the person who goes into the doctor's office. And he says, you have an incredible sickness and I'm only giving you six months to live. And here are the tests we've run. And this is what we've seen. And here's the diagnosis. And you look at him and you say, well, I feel fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with me. And you walk away untreated. That's foolishness. You see, the way of the world is destruction. And the Christian's goal is to wrestle with it, to, to come to grips with the danger that the world presents. Now, how can we do this? You might be saying to yourself, I don't know how I could possibly follow the Apostle Paul. And even others, I can't even follow Timothy or Epaphroditus. I'd have trouble following officers here. The way in which you follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, the way in which you wrestle with the world is by knowing that you are Jesus's and by waiting for him by waiting for Jesus Christ. And the Jesus that we wait for is first and foremost our Savior. Jesus knows who you are. You don't need to pretend in front of Jesus. You know, sometimes we do that, don't we? Especially in front of our children. We pretend we know everything. We pretend we're, we're good at everything that comes along our path. But you see, before the Lord... Everything is laid bare. Jesus knows our frame. Paul says he is the one that will transform our lowly body, the body of our humiliation, the body that is not altogether, 
Our existence that is not perfect. Jesus will transform it. He knows who we are. And He doesn't just know our frame. Jesus transports us. You see, our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. He doesn't say, will be. Jesus Christ, as our Savior, transports us to heaven where all of the blessings of heaven are ours now. And that makes the day-to-day living easier, doesn't it? We're not waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're not hoping to get a heavenly reward. We're not hoping God will smile upon us. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is a present tense that we exist in God's reign. And this is one of the instances, one of the, it's a few instances in the Bible where you don't even have to come up with a good illustration. The, the Bible's illustration is the best one you could ever come up with. Paul is speaking to the Philippians. The Philippians were a Roman colony. That means that in Greece, they spoke Latin. They wore Roman togas. If you had a passport from Philippi, it would say you were a citizen of the city of Rome. It was a little Rome. And so what Paul is saying, just like you know, Philippians, that you are Romans, even though you don't live there right now, even though you are a Roman miniature, you are Romans, true and tried. And Paul says to the Christian, even though you have not yet attained, even though glory is not in your midst, you are with Jesus. Nothing can take you out of His hand. Your citizenship is with King Jesus in heaven. This is Jesus Christ, our Savior. But He's more than our Savior. Jesus is also our Lord. You see, Jesus rules over us. He is, as Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember that in the church. All of the names of our Lord are important. He is Jesus as He saves His people from their sins. But He's not Jesus only. He's also Christ, the Messiah, the Mediator. But He's not just Jesus Christ. In His fullness, He is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul says merely by calling upon Jesus that this nonsense theology that says I can have Jesus as my Savior and not as my Lord. I can punch my ticket to heaven and live however I want is foolishness because He is only one Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a great comfort to you and to me because He is our Lord, which means He is able. He is able to save. He is able to rule. He is able to preserve. Notice what Paul says. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. And how does He do this? He does it by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Are you anxious about the Christian life? Because you're not sure you can cut it in prayer. Not sure that you have the gift of memorizing the Scriptures. You're fearful or tentative about witnessing. Not sure that when things come to be difficult, that you'll be ready, that you'll follow God's will. Paul has the answer for you here. It's not try harder. 
It's not roll up your sleeves. It's not just get it together. It's look to the Lord Jesus Christ who rules over you and who is effective and powerful. So powerful that he subjects all things to himself. Do you see that? You see, the Christian life is a powerful life because Jesus is powerful. Because Jesus is effective. And this whole passage here, as we think about the focus of our lives and the focus of our family's lives and the focus of our church, is upon Jesus Christ. Paul's focus is not upon some abstract hope, believer. It is upon a person. It is upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is where our focus should lie. Let us pray.